Back in the early 1900s, steam locomotives used coal as a fuel source. It was a more effective and efficient way than wood to power that essential method of transportation. Just as those locomotives needed coal to run, humans need glucose in order to generate enough energy to carry out our daily activities. Whenever there was a lack of coal, steam engines had to use wood as an alternative. This could get the job done, but would eventually ruin the steam burner. Similarly, if we are unable to get glucose into our cells, as is the case in insulin deficiency, we have to resort to fatty acids for energy. While this can help us create some energy, the process creates an acidic environment that will harm us in the long run. Today on our show, we talk about a medical emergency created by the lack of insulin and the inability of our bodies to use glucose. Today, our patient has diabetic ketoacidosis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is called The Engine That Could, with little help, and is about the diabetic emergency DKA. Okay, time for Minute Physiology. In states of acute illness and stress, there's a release of counter-regulatory hormones such as glucagon, cortisol, catecholamines, and growth hormone that induce our bodies to undergo glucose production and glycogen and adipose tissue breakdown. In cases of absolute or relative insulin insufficiency, cellular uptake of glucose is impaired, creating an energy-starved environment. This then creates a mobilization and oxidation of fatty acids in the liver to be used as an alternative energy source. This process creates ketone bodies as byproducts, acetone, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and acetoacetate, which leads to an acidic environment, or metabolic acidosis, and a subsequent shift of potassium outside of the cells. The lack of insulin also leads to intravascular hyperglycemia, which causes osmotic diuresis and urinary losses of water and electrolytes, resulting in an extracellular fluid volume depletion. In all, we end up with a hyperglycemic, ketotic, acidotic state, and a total body volume and electrolyte depletion, especially potassium. Alright, now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. The first thing you should do when a patient presents with DKA is assess for clinical stability. Go and look at the patient and determine if they are stable while you work on your plan and send for investigations. If the patient is clinically unstable, call for help. Signs of instability include decreased level of consciousness, hypotension, tachycardia, Kussmaul's breathing, which are rapid and deep breaths, and vomiting refractory to antiemetics. You should also think of your ABCs. Does the patient need intubation? Are they fatiguing or decompensating? Do they need oxygen? Also ensure they have two large-bore IVs, a urinary catheter, and that the patient is in a monitored setting, such as a step-down unit. Ask the nurse to document the vital signs every 15 minutes for the first hour, then every hour for four to six hours, then every two hours thereafter. If anything changes and the patient becomes unstable, call for help. When taking the history, concentrate on the symptoms of hyperglycemia, polyuria, polydipsia, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Also try to identify the potential precipitating factors for DKA and take an appropriate history for each one. Normally, we think of the eight I's. 1. Insulin non-adherence, 2. Infection, 3. Infarction, myocardial, 4. Initial presentation of type 1 diabetes, 5. Intoxication, alcohol or drugs like cocaine, 
Six, inflammation, pancreatitis, cholecystitis, or trauma. Seven, ischemia, acute abdomen or stroke. Eight, iatrogenic, such as steroids or antipsychotics. On physical examination, assess for signs and symptoms of dehydration, like tachycardia, hypotension, dry mucous membranes. Signs of hyperglycemia, like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, or ileus. And signs of acidosis, like Kussmaul's respirations and acetone odor on the breath. We can now prioritize the management of DKA into six parts. Potassium replacement, fluid resuscitation, insulin infusion, bicarbonate infusion, serum osmolality monitoring, and management of precipitating factors. Remember to admit the patient to a monitored setting. First, potassium replacement. DKA patients have a total body deficit of potassium stores. This is true even if you see hyperkalemia on initial blood work. Remember that ketoacidosis will drive potassium into the extracellular space, and the osmotic diuresis will cause an electrolyte depletion. Once you start providing insulin, this will drive potassium back into the cells and put the patient at risk for hypokalemia and associated arrhythmias. Make sure you keep a close eye on the potassium. We use the following rule of thumb. If potassium is more than 5 millimoles per liter, we can safely start insulin infusion. If potassium is between 3.3 to 5 millimoles per liter, we can start potassium supplementation by adding 20 milliequivalents per liter of KCL to your fluids. If the patient is anuric, wait until urine output is established before supplementing potassium. Finally, if potassium is less than 3.3 millimoles per liter, replace potassium ASAP and add 40 milliequivalents per liter to your IV fluids and start your insulin. Ensure close monitoring of potassium to ensure it rises above 3.3 millimoles per liter. Second, fluid resuscitation. Patients with DKA have severe volume depletion, on average 6 to 8 liters, given their osmotic diuresis, vomiting, and decreased oral intake related to their illness. Start by giving fluid boluses of 1 to 2 liters for the first hour or two. After, you can give 500 mils per hour for 4 hours, then decrease to 250 mils per hour thereafter. Always reassess the patient's volume status and see if they require more or less fluids and adjust accordingly. Ensure caution in patients with CHF or renal failure. Remember to insert a urinary catheter so that we can monitor accurate urine output as well. Third, insulin infusion. It is important to remember that insulin is used to stop ketone body production, not to decrease plasma glucose. Your insulin infusion will depend solely on your anion gap, and you should adjust it accordingly. Start your insulin infusion at 0.1 units per kilogram per hour and titrate against your anion gap. There is no need to use an insulin bolus, as this has not been shown to improve outcomes. You only consider stopping the insulin infusion in cases where potassium is much less than 3.3. As you give insulin, your blood glucose will also drop. Do not let this drop be more than 5 millimoles per liter per hour. Adjust your insulin infusion accordingly. Ensure that your blood glucose stays between 12 to 15 millimoles per liter. If your glucose drops below 15, you can add D5W to your fluids to compensate. Never stop your insulin infusion because of dropping blood glucose. Instead, add dextrose to your fluids. You can switch to subcutaneous insulin when all of the following are met. 1. The anion gap is closed. 2. Blood glucose is less than 15 millimoles. 3. Insulin requirements are 0.5 to 1 unit per hour. And 4. Patient is hungry and tolerating PO intake. Consider waiting until morning so that the patient can be closely monitored during the transition. And remember, you must overlap your IV insulin with subcutaneous long-acting insulin for one to two hours before stopping your insulin infusion altogether. Fourth, bicarbonate. 
The use of bicarbonate may only be beneficial if the pH is less than 6.9. In these cases, you can give one amp of sodium bicarbonate in 200 mls of D5W over one hour and repeat every two hours until pH is more than 7. Avoid giving bicarbonate if potassium is less than 3.3, as this can exacerbate hypokalemia. Fifth, serum osmolality. Cerebral edema is of concern if osmolality or sodium are corrected too quickly. Avoid correcting glucose by more than 5 millimoles per liter per hour, or plasma osmolality faster than 3 milliosmoles per kilogram per hour. A quick note on sodium. Hyperglycemia can create a pseudo-hyponatremia. Remember to correct or increase sodium by 3 millimoles per liter for every increase in glucose of 10 above 10 millimoles per liter. If the patient has hypernatremia, drop the sodium content of your fluids by using one half normal saline instead. And sixth, precipitating factors. You will have to address the underlying trigger for DKA in order for your management to be successful. These measures will help you stabilize your patient, but until the underlying factors are dealt with, the patient can fall back into DKA again. Do they need antibiotics? ACS management? Surgical consult? People do not go into DKA spontaneously. Try to identify what drove them into it. Now that we've established the management, let's discuss laboratory investigations for someone with DKA. These include CBC to look for infection, electrolytes and extended electrolytes and bicarbonate for any abnormalities and to calculate the anion gap, lactate and osmolar gap to assess for co-ingestions, creatinine, BUN for AKI and dehydration, lipase, liver enzymes for pancreatitis, VBG for respiratory compensation to metabolic acidosis, beta-hydroxybutyrate to look for blood ketones, urinalysis for urine ketones or acetoacetate, urine culture for urinary tract infection, blood cultures for bacteremia, troponins for MI, and plasma osmolality. You may also want to order a chest x-ray for pneumonia, an ECG for MI or arrhythmias, a CT head for possible stroke, and a beta-HCG if the patient is a woman of childbearing age. You will then have to monitor the following. 1. CBGQ 1-2 to two hour while the IV insulin infusion is running, and 2. Electrolytes and extended electrolytes Q2-4 to four hours to calculate your anion gap and correct any electrolyte abnormalities. It is useful to create a flow sheet to keep track of whether your changes are effective or not. Remember that frequent reassessment of your patient is a must. Before we go, we'll leave you with a quick fun fact. There's another entity called hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, or HHS, that closely resembles DKA. However, it is less common, and the main features are significant hypovolemia and hyperosmolality, but very mild metabolic acidosis. You should think of HHS in patients with type 2 diabetes and severely uncontrolled hyperglycemia. The neurological deficits are augmented in HHS with decreased LOC that resolves with normalizing osmolality. Mortality can be as high as 25%, so don't take this entity lightly. Precipitating factors are similar to DKA, and the management consists mainly of volume resuscitation, remember that these patients are also severely volume deplete, and at times insulin infusions to decrease plasma glucose to below 14 millimoles per liter. As always, ensure that you correct for any electrolyte imbalances and that your osmolality and sodium don't correct too quickly. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Internet Work on Diabetic Ketoacidosis. This episode was written by Dr. Hernan Franco, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Ali Prebtani, endocrinologist, and Dr. Leslie Martin, general internist. This podcast was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is managed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt-Vegas. 
Music production by Lakshman Vasanthamohan. If you enjoy this podcast, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Internet Work, and we hope to see you again soon.